name is Sunyarita, and this is Running on Optimism, the podcast for amateur runners or really anyone drawing inspiration from something or someone in their lives. Today I got to chat with Dave Scarpello, an eight-time marathoner with lots of halves under his belt. But his most incredible feat is his ability to share his battle with post-traumatic stress disorder in order to help others going through the same or similar. After being injured during an armed robbery and years later being struck by a drunk driver, Dave found within him the will to quit his pain medication and reclaim his life. I am so grateful to share Dave's inspiring journey with you. So welcome, Dave. Let's start off by learning a little bit more about you um, and what life events kind of led you to running and where you're from. Okay, I'm from Philadelphia, born and raised. I've been here my whole life. Um, When I was young, I ran a lot. I played, I was baseball, football, hockey, uh, soccer, track and field. So I was always running. I was never, um, like I wasn't born with natural athletic ability. The only like natural athletic ability I had was that I was fast. So in track, I was a sprinter and actually I had asthma. So that limited me to what I, what I could do. Mm-hmm. And um, where I went to high school in North Philadelphia, there was no cross country team or like that wasn't even an option because we were in like in the like in the inner city like a block from the subway yeah Um, there was no running to catch the subway or (laughs) yeah no that was like the limit of the running so like i was the i ended up um i played all the sports baseball was my favorite but it turned out to be the best at soccer and I ended up with um, a few Division One soccer scholarships, um, but then I blew my knee out the first day um, at Temple University. Oh man! Um, so I ne- so I never pl- I never actually played, and they honored the scholarship for one year. Um, but I recovered a hundred percent from that to get back to regular life. Okay. Um, and that was, so I'm 54, so that was freshman year, it was 1984, the fall of 84. And then I went back to, you know, regular life. I could play basketball again, do the things I normally did. And then in 1992, I was assaulted during an armed robbery. Um, and it, the short version is that I never had a back problem a day in my life before I got assaulted. Um, and within two weeks, I had emergency back surgery. Um, basically, two guys grabbed me from two different directions as I was trying to get away from the guy with the gun. And they pulled, they, like popped my, my back like a wishbone, basically. Oh, so I had surgery in 92. I had the same surgery again in 94. And then I had to go in for a third surgery in 97 so so what um so what what did you slip a disc what exactly was the the injury that just kept reoccurring yeah i had uh, the first two surgeries are laminectomies at l5s1 for herniated disc so yeah basically it was a herniated disc and then they removed the part that was herniated and then i had really bad sciatica down my right leg as a result and and i still have it 
like to this day, the sciatica. Yeah. Um, so the first two surgeries are laminectomies where basically it, it herniated and then it reherniated. And then because I had the surgery so young, I overhealed and that space filled in with scar tissue. So they had to go in to remove some of the scar tissue. So by the time I had the third surgery in 97, that left me partially disabled. But I returned to life. Like I no longer played sports like I did before 92. Um, and the, I dealt with chronic pain pretty much from 92 on. So, you know, more than half of my life. Um, but I kind of resumed life after 97. And then in 2004, I got hit by a drunk driver. Um, I was stopped at a red light. I, I don't remember the accident. I only know what I know from the police reports and lawyers. And um, the woman was had no insurance, was doing like 70 miles an hour. And I was one minute I'm stopped at a red light. And the next thing I remember is just like in the movies where like the bright, you see the bright light and then a nurse like leans over and she's like, you're in a trauma center. You're okay. You're in an accident. Um, and it was, I don't know if it was cause I was in a, like a big city, inner city trauma center where they're used to dealing with gunshot victims and stabbings. And cause you know, Philly's a pretty rough place. Yeah. Um, so to be in a car accident, I don't like, I don't think they took that as seriously as they might've some other places where they get so jaded because of all the violence and the ugliness that they see that they pretty much came in not too long after they said you're in an accident and we're like, Hey, um, it sucks, but you're never going to walk again. So here's a wheelchair catalog, pick one out. Yeah. <laughs> and so did, they, like, did they deliver any news about the diagnosis about what exactly happened to you like what i mean they not really no they just jumped to you're not gonna walk again pretty much they were like you were already like having trouble and this was just the knockout blow wait um, so you had <laughs> before this you had a slip disc right and like a few lemon like no laminectomies and um but you were still functioning you were were you right. before the 2004 accident or were you i know you weren't playing sports like you used to but were you staying active uh as best as i could but mm -hmm. i like i i didn't run after 92. okay um so i i i to pretty much like other than if a dog was chasing me or if there was a fire or i was somewhere where unfortunately i was in situations where i would like people would start shooting mm -hmm. like i could physically run yeah um but i hadn't really like been a runner since i graduated from high school okay. in 84. um but yeah my so my back got all messed up all over again um i have six herniated discs in my neck and then they found out that i had degenerative disc disease on top of that um and i had like dislocated my shoulder and my hip um the sciatica got worse my legs had gotten mangled up um so it it was pretty bad 
Um, and I was in the hospital for, I don't even remember how many days, but it was a, a good amount of time. Um, and I did spend some time in the wheelchair in the hospital, um, but I told them right away, I'm like, no, no, I'm not looking at, I actually threw, I apologized later, but when the nurse bought the wheelchair catalog, like I threw it at her and was like, get this out of my face. Like I'm, I'm walking, Yeah. like I'm walking out of here. And they were like, it's good to have a great attitude and to be positive, but you have to be realistic. And um, I was like, I, you don't know me. Like, I'm not a statistic. You don't know what I've been through already, like, that I've overcome. I'm like, I'm going to beat this. Um, but even though I said that, it was still, re like, really scary. You know, when somebody's telling you, like, you're not going to walk again. Here's a wheelchair cat. Like, and I remember at that moment thinking, like, who, like, I never even realized there were wheelchair catalogs. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, ma it makes sense in hindsight, but up until the point where somebody's telling you, oh, here's a wheelchair catalog. It's not something that you, um, that you think about. Of course. You know, in our case, we'd see those St. Jude's commercials, right? And then you're like, oh, wow, that's really sad. Children with cancer. Yeah. You know, it, it, I think we all have that, that moment where, or we can kind of relate to that moment of, wow, um, there's people going through this stuff and it's just kind of always been in the background and you don't know until you're in it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I walked out of the hospital with a walker um, and they were amazed. And I was like, I'm going to be the best rehab patient like in the history of planet Earth. Like, I'm just going to do the work. So that much, I, I had confidence all along that if it was possible that I was going to do it mm -hmm. um, because all the success that I had had previously in life, it really wasn't because I was bigger or stronger or smarter than anybody. It was my work ethic. So like I, I pretty much got everything that I did in life because I was willing to outwork everyone else. Yeah. Um, so I just had that same mindset when it came to this. And although it was really ugly and bad stuff with the back surgeries, like what lies ahead um, as far as rehab and how long it's going to take and the pain meds. And um, so that wasn't a total shock. Um, it's stressful, but I kind of was like, you know, you take a deep breath and you're like, okay, I like, I'm either going to keep moving or I'm going to die. Like, that's really my only two options. Yeah. Um, and I imagine, you know, prior to this dealing with chronic pain, it, it's no picnic. It's every day you wake up with pain and um, you try to ha find a way to make that day just happen. Right. Right. And it's re and it was really, really frustrating because I was, like I was 26 years old when I got assaulted. Mm -hmm. So although I have sciatica and chronic pain in the back, on the outside, I look like perfectly normal. So everyone judged me. Yeah. Um, even doctors judged me when I would have episodes of the sciatica where I'd end up in the ER and I needed like Dilaudid or like some kind of crazy strong painkiller. 
Um, but I couldn't tell them, like I knew exactly what I needed, but I couldn't tell them because they would automatically be like, oh, you're a drug seeker, we're not helping you. And I had situations where they would just like, just leave me and, and, and not treat me until I eventually literally would just like get up and like crawl out of the ER. Um, and again, I, I, I don't know if it's like that everywhere. I think it could be that. I also think that there is um, the world in general, a society in general has a hard time seeing chronic illness and these silent illnesses where we mainstream a certain type of person and then the rest of it is just on the margins. But I think that you speaking up and then, you know, us speaking up for Izzy and, and all of the people who I've spoken to kind of help shed light on these things and hopefully um, people's experiences will change when dealing with chronic pain and chronic illness. Yeah, like I, and, and I've actually addressed, like I've had medical professionals, you know, in the year since now that they're learning more about, you know, we, we thinking everyone's a liar, we might have been wrong that they've asked me, they're like, you're pretty open and willing to talk about your story. And I've spoken to medical students and said, like, this is my story. Like, please, whatever you do, maybe most of the people that you talk to are lying when they need pain medicine, but you can't assume that all of us are because you're punishing those of us that are like legitimately in pain. And it, it seemed like it made some, you know, some real impact. Um, so, and it's always good to feel heard, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was what I was just going to say. It was like, even if they didn't really do anything with that information, it felt good to have the opportunity to present it. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so that all basically brought me to, uh, with the pain meds from 92 to 94 and 97, they had me on a, on Percocet, but it was only a, like a lot right after surgery yeah. with rehab, but then eventually it, I would only take it as needed. So I could still kind of function and get back to like a full-time job and everything. When I got hit by the drunk driver in 2003, then I needed, pain meds like 24 seven like that just like took it up like to a crazy whole nother level of chronic pain yeah uh, um and I spent like I lost years of my life literally years just in bed um because I need like I needed the the pain meds and thank god I guess I don't have that addictive gene so like I never took more than I was supposed to. Um, and I went to the pain clinic and they would write the prescriptions. And I, but even so, it doesn't matter like how it's getting into your body. It, if, you're, if it's in your body, it's affecting you the same way as somebody who's abusing it. So it, it was really frustrating because people would ask me all the time, um, Oh, do you want to sell? Some, if you ever want to sell some of your extra Percocet, and I was like, "What the like?" And and people would say that casually, and I'm like, yeah. "No, like this isn't a joke. Like I like no amount of money is going to be worth the pain I would be in to to not have my medication." Um, 
So it, in, in one sense, the medicine is a godsend because it, it takes you out of that, you know, that, that crazy pain. But the downside is it rewires your brain and it turns you into a zombie. Mm -hmm. So I gained weight. I isolated and I lived alone at the time. So it was even, e it was even easier for me to like fall off the mat because there wasn't somebody there every day to say like, Hey, get up, take a shower. Um, did you eat? Let me help you stand up, sit down. Um, and yeah, I went, I went to the pain clinic. Went, like, well, actually I remember there was a morning in 2012 so i had been on the pain meds at this point for like eight years like every six hours like i lived my whole life was lived in six hour increments and you you would look at the clock when it got to be like 5 45 the pain would start coming back and you're like oh i can't take it now because then i'm gonna have to wait longer for the next one so it's just it's crazy but it controls your life yeah and I had a morning where I got up and I went in the bathroom and I looked in the bathroom mirror and I looked at myself and I just looked like I was dead. And I'm like, I'm breathing, but I stopped living a long time ago. And I'm like, I, I, I can't do this. Like, I, not for the rest of my life. I'm still relatively young. Yeah. And I was like, I just have to get like, I, I got to get off the medicines and see what happens. So I went to the pain clinic. And I said, this is going to be my last appointment. Um, I'm going to wean myself off. And they were like, yeah, you can't do that. I'm like, I can do whatever I want. And they're like, no, you, I don't think you understand like what's involved with that. Um, like we'd have to send you to like a detox and then a rehab. I'm like, but I'm not a drug addict. I like, I just wanted out of my system. Um, so I'm just going to go home and I'm like, I have enough. Like, give me one more prescription and I'll just like gradually decrease my dosage and go through the awful withdrawal. And I did, that's exactly what I did. And I tell everyone, I'm like, when you see in the movies, when somebody's going through withdrawal from drugs, it's, it's worse in real life. Oh like it's awful. And I, I feel so bad for people that actually have like, uh, like addiction problems. Because it was hard enough for me to go through it just physically, not wanting to stay in that mindset. I, I can't imagine if I had like the additional stress of like, I'm afraid to not be sober or not feel what I would feel like without this. Um, and it, it took about three months. Um, it was a really long process. Um, but then, like you realize it rewires your brain, but it happens so slowly that you don't realize you have become a different person over these years. So I had a lot of like amends to do to go back to family and friends once I got off of the medication and say, like, I was such a jerk and so mean and so short with people. And they were like, it's okay. We know, we, we know it wasn't you. We know it was the medicines and the pain. So people were really understanding but i still felt bad uh, you know i said things to people that didn't mean i would you know lash out um and it was all just out of frustration and pain um but like once they were out of my system i felt like i had a new lease on life um so how did you 
how did you manage so how did how did you get back on your feet and how did you manage um your pain when did you feel um as you were weaning was the pain of withdrawal greater than the pain from your injury oh yes okay yeah the, the pain from the withdrawal was so bad that you forget that you're in any physical pain okay like it just takes it that's why i said like it's worse than it looks on the movies it's it it's it's crazy if anyone's listening that and i'm sure they are that have that have gone through it um they're nodding their head like yep he knows he knows um and i i found out when i got off then once i got over that stage then the physical pain came back and it came back stronger so then i had that fight of i have to deal with this now because i i cut the doctors off and i'm not calling them back and saying oh i changed my mind can you write me another prescription for percocet i'm like whether it's smart or not like i'm so stubborn and like, if I decide I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something. I don't want anybody's advice. Like, I, like I just make, uh, you know, make a plan and I stick to it. And that's what I did. I also found out, like, I was able to fight the additional pain long enough for my brain to rewire itself back pre-opioid. Because mm -hmm. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the opioids help with the pain short term but long term they not when they rewire your brain they're also rewiring your pain receptors so it's not that you're not in more pain but your brain it feels like it's in more pain so you really are mm -hmm. experiencing more pain so i found out that that i actually was in less pain once i had them completely out of my system and my brain had had some time to you know like like re literally rewire itself yeah um and then it was like a long slow process it's not like i got off the pain meds and then i ran a, a marathon like it was there was still more like years in between mm -hmm. um so i started to actually be able to be awake um during the day i would see the sun yeah uh, because with the on the pain meds sometimes in in the winter time uh it like i would roll over and look at the clock and it would say 4 30 and i would say i don't know if it's 4 30 in the morning or 4 30 at night yeah yeah there were times where i would miss like entire days like i'd be like oh the flyers game is on tonight and then i would get up and they're like yeah they they, they lost to the bruins that was last night um, cause it just knocks you out. That's why I said like you, you're breathing, but you're not living. Well, here's the thing too. There's so many people who are currently living through this, have lived through it. And there's the stigma that comes from opioid addiction and how many people have suffered an injury and the only answer was opioids was Percocet or, or what have you. And they aren't able to pick themselves up or they are not active members in society almost against their own will. Right. See, I, and, and 
where I was so blessed was, um, and, and a lot of doctors don't even know this, or if they do know it, they tend to ignore it, is that, like, did I need to take the Percocet every six hours to feel normal? Mm -hmm. Yes, but I never abused it. So there's a big distinction between being addicted to opioids and being physically dependent. Mm -hmm. And luckily for me, I was only physically dependent. That's why I said, like, I can't, like, I went through the withdrawal um, voluntarily with only the, um, you know, needing them physically. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, like, I can't imagine having to do that with the additional burden of actually, like, having the addictive gene or feeling that you, you had to have them. So the whole time that I went through it, I was cognizant of what was happening and where I was in the process. Mm -hmm. So for me, it wasn't like, oh, I need to take a Percocet. It was like, I would do one, two, three, four, five. Okay, now I'm five seconds closer to this being over. Yeah. Um, so I was, as awful as it was, I was blessed in that way. And that's another thing that, um, where I said the doctors all think you're a liar is because they don't realize that you can actually literally be a legitimate patient that's physically dependent but not addicted mm -hmm. because i would i would get so frustrated in the er and i'm like i had surgery in this hospital i'm like just bring up my chart like you'll see that i had so i like i'll show you my scar and they're sometimes just like nope 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 nothing um you know or it would take uh where i said sometimes i would leave because it, it would be hours because you know when they had 19 gunshot victims and five stabbings and, and you know 10 rape victims coming in mm -hmm. and i'm just the guy who's complaining that his back hurts so you are no longer on your pain meds and life just did it i mean obviously it took a long time for you to start kind of being out and about with people again right yeah, because it, it, it almost got to the point where over the years, people would stop inviting me to things because they knew I wasn't going to come. And it wasn't that I didn't want to participate, but I was just in so much pain. And I'm like, I don't want to ruin it for everyone else. I'm feeling, you know, my sciatic is really hurting today, which means when I get there, I'm probably going to be grumpy and I don't want to ruin it for everyone else. So you, you just like tend to isolate. Um, and I'm sure... And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do, I imagine there's depression that plays a role in this because you can no longer participate and have that human connection anymore because you're so in your pain. Oh, it's, it's huge. And I had PTSD from, uh, I had it from a lot of childhood experiences just where I grew up and having you know, witnessing friends die in front of me and, you know, you, like you, you can't help but have PTSD when you, like, when you witness where you're the victim of so much violence. Mm -hmm. um, so I had the PTSD that I dealt with, um, anxiety and depression. And yeah, it, like it took over my life. So it was really, really hard and scary to interact with people again. Um, and Come even, on. go ahead. Um, I just wanted to highlight that, um, 
you mentioned you had PTSD, and I think that often uh, people assume that PTSD is something that only um, people who have seen combat or in the military and have seen combat go through. But it's important too to to put that out there because um, you know I have dealt with PTSD, a lot of um, trauma from Izzy's diagnosis, and you know it's it's like they describe it. You kind of live it all over again, almost like a movie reel behind your eyeballs and you're elsewhere, but in your mind, you are in that moment. Right. And, and for me, even before the, where I got assaulted during the armed robbery, I had already been stabbed and, you know, been caught in crossfire and, and witnessed friends shot and killed in front of me. So I often say to people that the only difference between me and most of the males that I grew up with is that I have a diagnosis. I'm not embarrassed to talk about it. Um, and I'm in treatment for it. But there, like, you can't tell. There's, like, there's whole communities that, are, that suffer from PTSD just because of the, the living conditions. Um, and 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 I think it's especially important as a as a man to speak up because there is that you know the the stigma that uh you're like you're not tough if you admit like I tell people all the time like yeah I cried yesterday when I ran I was really like I was upset and people are like why do you, like some my friends will ask me offline God, they're like why do you tell people you cry and I'm like I've seen you cry and they're like yo I'm not I'm not gonna go on Facebook and tell people and I'm like but why not. That, that's the thing you like you that's the only way you're going to change things and help people is if you're like you had to be completely transparent like I'm no less tough because I cry I, um, I always say that uh, vulnerability is actually a sign of strength to be able to put that, yourself out there that actually means that you're you're stronger than what tried to take you down absolutely and 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 I'm definitely vulnerable like willing to be publicly vulnerable now but I think that's all uh, some of that comes with age and experience but it wasn't like that when when I had PTSD in my teen years you know then you're extra tough and you're trying extra extra hard um and the the one thing that was really difficult for me uh from 92 on uh being being a man um, you know, in the way society looks at us and it, you, every, you, everything is so physical and you're so physically strong. And, you know, a lot of that is the way people look at you is based on, does he look tough? Does he look like he can fight? You know, does he look like somebody would bother him? Um, and I had always been an athlete. Um, I had always been somebody that was willing to fight. Like somebody like, what? Oh, you want to fight? Let's go. And I would, or three guys would be like, all right, I'll fight all three of you. It was just like my mentality. So everything in my life was very based on physicality. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's a defense mechanism. But when you're in that environment, you, like, you have to protect yourself. Like, you have to, like, exude being strong. So for me, so much of, uh, I guess, my identity was... I can take care of myself. And then all of a sudden in 92, I had the back surgery 
and now I can't protect myself physically. Mm-hmm. And that is, oh, I can't even describe like the depression and the like being scared that comes with that. And I want to help people in general, but like I want to help my friends. I have friends that I know suffer with PTSD every day, like I do. Um, and honestly, people a lot of times like, oh, it's so great. You're helping other people. And I'm like, granted, it is. But it also helps me. Like, it makes me feel like all the ugliness that I've been through wasn't in vain if I can somehow flip it to, like, help somebody else. Like, if someone else cannot have a suicide attempt, like, because I have more than once. I've checked myself in the mental hospital uh, when I thought I was going to kill myself more than once. If me speaking out can stop someone else from getting to that point, then it makes me feel like it was... I don't want to say worth it, but like less awful, I guess. Yeah, um, you have that ability and that strength to carry that torch for others. I completely understand because that's why we share Izzy's story and we try to tell Izzy that what you went through is not, it's not about sadness, it's not about trauma, it's about lifting other people up because other people are going to go through the same thing and you have the magical ability to lift other people up so So, uh so so you you i mean you've had ptsd your whole life and you're so now you're um you're off of your your meds you're you've you're reconciling life right you're you're coming back to life and probably dealing with some other trauma from being isolated for so long. How do you go from that to now running? Um, so once I stop with the shaking and the sweating and the, you know all the, the symptoms of withdrawal, mm-hmm. a little bit of for my brain to you know catch up. Uh, luckily, I only live two blocks from the YMCA. So I joined the Y and I did what they call aqua jogging. And you wear this squishy thing that looks like a, like a big puffy weightlifting belt. And it lets you stay upright in the water. So I could actually run in the water and do like, they had a lap lane for water jogging. Okay. So it was like me and all my new octogenarian friends that, you know, that would meet every morning and and do the water jogging and it was amazing because it allows you to to move your legs without any pressure on your spine yep so for me it was great so for like two years i just did water jogging i went to the y i went in the pool did water jogging and that was it and then i slowly started walking on the treadmill a little bit and then just venturing out farther in the neighborhood um and I is one of those things with the walking where I don't know how it happened but I would just walk like longer and longer mm-hmm. that people were like oh that's the running I mean the walking man because they would see me like walking everywhere and there was um I guess like the highlight of my walking was it was a night in June one year and I said, I'm just going to go for a walk around the neighborhood. 
And I ended up at a friend's restaurant 20 miles away in the suburbs. It literally just, well, and I was like, oh, I'm this far. I might as well just keep going. I'll go to Tom's restaurant and have dinner and then like take the train back home. Oh, wow. And people are like, wait, you, you walk from Philly to Phoenixville? And I'm like, ah, it was fun. It was nice. And they're like, isn't that boring? Like, the, what do you do? Do you listen to headphones? I'm like, oh, no, I can't have headphones. And that's something even now with running. Like, you'll never be running with headphones. And part of that's from the PTSD that I need, like, so for me, I need to make sure not only is a dog not coming up on me, I want to hear the chain jingling or that, you know, uh, the deer is not getting ready to get me or uh, whatever. Yep. I also need to make sure that somebody's not coming up from behind to try to rob me mm-hmm. or to hit me. Um, a lot of times when I'm running now and even when I'm walking, like I'll do a thing where if I'm in a long stretch, like I'll do a complete 360 spin around. While you're running. Right, just to make, just to like watch my back. Yeah. Um, so if I'm on a bus, I like to be in the very back in the corner so I can see what's in front of me. If I'm in a restaurant, I don't like to have my back to the door. Um, but yeah, it's affected my, my running. Well, affected is a wrong word because people think it's boring to not listen to music when you're running. But for me, like that's my, um, it, it became my medicine and my meditation. Yeah, for sure. To walking. So I, because of the PTSD and the anxiety, um, I have a really hard time being still. So there are always doctors and friends, yoga, yoga, yoga. And I tried all different kinds of yoga and I hated it. Like I, they're like, close your eyes. I'm like, close my eyes. I'm in a room full of 30 people. I don't know. I'm not closing my eyes. <laughs> yeah. And then they're like, take your shoes off. And I'm like, what do you mean take my shoes off? What if there's a fire or somebody starts shooting? And they're like, yeah. no one's going to shoot in the yoga studio, right? And they think it's funny, but it's actually, it's actually sad. Mm-hmm. It's really sad that you grew up in a way where like that's your mentality. And that's why I said there's entire communities that suffer from PTSD and don't even realize it. Um, so I found that like that peace and serenity that most people find in stillness, mm-hmm. I found movement. And, and that's how the, the, the walking and the running helped me tremendously where I didn't expect. So for a while I walked and then I, I could walk forever eventually. And I was like, they should have marathons for people who can't run but can walk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I eventually, after a few years, had got confident enough and it felt great not to walk with a limp. Yeah. So I was at least back to the point where I felt that, I don't want to say physical dominance, but like outwardly that I didn't look like a mark, like somebody that you would rob. Mm -hmm. Like I looked back to being a normal person that you didn't want to bother with mean face. Uh, And so of course I couldn't find that. And I started to ride the exercise bike at the Y and 
just do more and more stuff and try to push myself a little bit further, a little bit further, just to test myself. And then that YMCA that was only two blocks away had a, um, their annual 5K in 2014. And I was like, I wonder if I could, like, it seems so unattainable to me because at that point I hadn't really run since before 1992 and really since high school which was graduated in 84. Now it's 2014. And I approached the race director and said, "Um, I'm thinking about entering the 5K, don't laugh at me. And she was like, no, no, no. And I said, I don't know if I can physically run like that far. I know I can run if a dog is chasing me, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if I could run. Like, are you allowed to walk part of it? And she said, absolutely. She was like, this is the YMCA 5K. It's not the Boston Marathon. She was like, we have seniors and families that come out with strollers and just walk the whole thing. She's like, so you'll be good. And in my mind, I thought, what a victory if I could go back to those doctors who told me I'd never walk again and be like, I ran a 5K or I completed a 5K. Yeah. So I continued to do everything that I had been doing with the walking and the cycling and the swimming the water jogging but I didn't actually run until they said go in, in the race so there was like no like run training before wait so so you no. hadn't you hadn't run at all no so no. I mean your legs your body hadn't done this in years what was that feeling like when you just start going uh at first, I felt like when you see a, a like a horse being born, uh-huh. stand up. Yeah, like felt, Bambi. <laughs> yeah, it felt weird, but amazing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I tried to pace myself, and I just kept going. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I haven't, like, I don't need to walk yet. Let me keep going and um I got to the halfway the turnaround point because it was just an out and back like a flat out and back and then I started like hyperventilating on the inside I'm like oh my god I ran like halfway like so if I even if I have to walk I can tell people like I ran more than I than I walked yeah but running the whole thing and when I got to where I could see the finish line, it was like instinct took over and my brain just like flipped the switch back to like being a sprinter in high school. And I just went into like a full blown sprint and my arms are, you know, are going and my legs yeah. kicking and everyone is like, they're going crazy at the finish line because they know like this story and like everyone's mouths are like wide open, like, oh my God. So I crossed the finish line and then I just cried, like, I cried like a baby. I was like, I can't believe I just did that. And the, the endorphins that were released from that, the, the emotion, it was like the first, like real, like genuine happiness I had felt in so long that I was like, oh, uh, I need to do that again. So, so from being like one and done. Yeah. And I was like, I have to do that again. And I found another um, Black Girls Run had a 5K that was 
two weeks later and I was like, I'm doing it. And then I, and then I finished that one like six minutes faster Wow. than the first one. Um, and I was like, oh, like th this running thing is like, this is something I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I was like, okay, I can do 5Ks. What's next? And people were like, do a 10K. And I'm like, all right. And I did a 10K like two weeks after that. Um, and then I went out and, you know, started looking for Facebook groups for running clubs. And I was like, I'm going to like, I'm going to be a runner. Um, but I still basically did 5Ks and 10Ks because I still had to build up. Mm -hmm. um, I was starting from scratch again. Um, and I did the Broad Street Run in Philly. It's the biggest 10-miler in the country. There's 40,000 runners. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember being in the corral because that was my first, like, big, big race. I had only done, like, you know, little local races with maybe like 40 50 people mm -hmm. and i am on philly's like main street mm -hmm. and i'm surrounded by 40,000 other runners and when i cross the start line like i started to cry and i was like oh my god like i can't like i'm gonna run 10 miles and and i thought like that was it like i didn't think about a half marathon or a marathon or anything it was just like I think I'm going to run 10 miles. And um, I did that and it was amazing. And I finished and thought I could probably do 3.1 more. Like it's in me. Yeah. How'd you feel after you ran those 10 miles? Like, did you even feel like you had more in your tank? Like, could, like at that moment, did you feel like you probably could have kept going? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I felt great it, it 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 almost makes no sense and the doctors say like we can't explain it that you would think all the pounding on the pavement would be like detrimental to my back and my pain but for me it as long as i'm in movement i'm mm -hmm. i'm keeping loose mm -hmm. all that the running helps with the sciatica it, it, it doesn't take it away um but it it doesn't make anything worse so then I decided I was going to train for um, a half marathon. Um, and I did a local one in Philly. Um, and then that was amazing. And I was like, I, I can't believe now I could tell the doctors I did a half marathon. So when, when did you do the half marathon? Because you started, you did that five, very first 5K in 2014. When was yeah. the half marathon? I, my first 5K was September 28, 2014. And then I ran the half marathon in 2015. Okay. Because I ran the New York City Marathon and the Philadelphia Marathon two weeks apart in 2016. Wow. So what happened was I, I, I finished the, the, the half marathon. Mm -hmm. And then like I couldn't I couldn't walk. It was it was a lot worse than the, the 10 miler because mm -hmm. I was trying to run faster. I felt like more serious about it by that point. Mm -hmm. um, but like the next day I woke up and walking down the steps was like excruciatingly painful. Like I went through the whole thing that everybody goes through. Yeah. And 
then my friends were like, now you can do a marathon. And I'm like, no, I can never do a marathon. <laughs> no way. I could do that. And then immediately do it all over again. Like it was, just, I'm like, there's one thing, like I can be cocky and all that and like try to push myself and, you know, decide I'm going to do something. But I was like, there is no way I can, I can, no, it just, it's impossible. Cause I was in so, so much pain for a few days after the, the half. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about that progression, right? Cause you're like 5k. All right. 10k it's double 5k but that's still six miles all right then let's try a 10 miler and then from the 10 miler what's another 5k to get to a half marathon that's the tricky thing about the progression of races is to get from a half marathon to a full marathon is it's it's really daunting and um that's where my headspace was for a while too yeah so i i i ran the half marathon and the, uh, I think I ran three half marathons that spring and summer. And I went to cheer at the um, 2015 Philadelphia Marathon. It was in November of 2015. Mm -hmm. And it was my first time actually at a marathon. Like I had never gone out and cheered, never happened to see one by accident. And I was so inspired by the runners that I was like, this time next year, people are going to be cheering for me. And uh, that it was literally in that moment where I decided, like, oh, I have a whole year to train. I'm going to do it. I'm so, nodding because I, I get it. I haven't run a marathon yet, but when I saw my husband do New York City, it is like these major marathons, they're, they're incredible to witness. Like, there's just love. There's just like everybody's happy and there's just like good vibes everywhere. It's contagious. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like a, a drug. Like, it's addictive and it's amazing. Um, and you don't, you don't experience that at the smaller races. The first time I experienced that was when I did the Broad Street Run with the 40,000 runners. Mm -hmm. And when I was, uh, cheering for people in 2015 at the Philly Marathon, I, I witnessed it and I was like, I want to be cheered for next year, a whole year to train. I'm at least going to try. And then the, uh, I was in all these Facebook groups and had all these runner friends by now. And they were like, oh, the lottery for New York City Marathon's coming up. And I'm like, why not? Bucket list item. Like, there was an 8% chance of getting in the lottery because I was never going to be elite enough to qualify. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing it, I'm getting into the lottery. I'm never going to get in the lottery because there's such a small chance of being picked. So I signed up for Philly, which was two weeks later, thinking that will be my marathon because my original plan was like, I'm going to run Philadelphia Marathon a year from now. Mm -hmm. Well, I ended up getting picked for New York. Like I got picked in the lottery on the first try with an 8% chance. So then people are like, well, what are you going to do about Philly? And I was like, I paid for it. I'm going to run it. And they're like, you idiots. They're like, it's two weeks later. And then I was like, wait, but that's great because that means I'll qualify to be in the marathon maniacs. And they were like, wait, they were like, you're so cocky. They were like, you're going to go from never running a marathon to running the New York City Marathon and two weeks later, oh, I'll do Philly. And I was like, why not? 
I'm never going to have no, another opportunity. And, but there's no comparison. So to do the New York City Marathon as your first marathon is just like mind blowing. Yeah. And as much as I, I love Philadelphia, I love everything about it. We hate all the New York sports teams, like you know the Philly New York rivalry, right? But there is Philly doesn't even come close to touching the New York City Marathon. That's just like a whole different beast. It was amazing until I got to mile 20 and then I hit that wall and I lost feeling below my waist. And I did the last 6.2 miles on like muscle memory. Like I was looking down and I'm like, okay, my legs are still moving. Yeah. That must've been terrifying though. Yeah, um, it, you know what? It was more terrifying afterwards. Okay. The adrenaline is so, well, my adrenaline was so high. Yeah. So excited that like once I, it didn't matter if my, if I would have fallen over, I would have rolled for 6.2 miles. Like there was nothing that was going to stop me from finishing. Yeah. And same thing happened in New York that happened in every other race I did. Like I, there's this point where you get close enough where you can see the finish line and I just take a deep breath and I just like unload and I'm like, I must've passed like 200 people you know, in the final stretch and the, you know, people are cheering and I crossed the finish line and I like literally was shaking. Yeah. It was like, Oh my God. Like I, I, I just ran the New York city marathon. Like, like I'm not supposed to be able to walk. Like, how, like, I don't know how that happened. And then the tears just started coming and I collapsed and I'm on my knees and I'm on the ground, almost looked like I was praying and crying at the same time, which I probably was. Um, and for a second, I was like, oh, I'm embarrassed because I'm, I'm like, I'm crying after finishing a race. But then I like, I looked to my side and like everywhere I looked, every other runner was pretty much doing the same thing. And I was like, oh, these are my people, like, these are my people. And then I just started, and me, like the, the guy who like has a mean face on the subway and is like, why are you talking to me? Like I'm hugging strangers and congratulating them that I don't even know. And it was like transformative and amazing. And I was like, I'm going to do more marathons. Um, and then I did Philly two weeks later. I ran Philly like an hour slower. Oh. <laughs> I didn't care. I didn't care about my time though. Yeah, yeah. And, and Philly, even though it's not the same as New York, Philly was really fun because there's so many more people I knew that were out along the course. Well, and you're running your city. You're, you're seeing your city from a different perspective too. I'm sure that that means a lot. Yeah, it's amazing. It is to be able to run in the middle of the street and, and you just seeing different landmarks mm -hmm. from that vantage point that you would never otherwise be able to get. You can't see from the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Unless you're a runner and you do races, you wouldn't even, you, you wouldn't even think about that. Just like I said, like you wouldn't think about a wheelchair catalog mm -hmm. until that position. You're like, wow, like look at the Liberty Bell from this vantage point. Like this is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, and I've just been running non-stop ever since so have you done more marathons since and 
what are what are your running goals? Just meditating and running for the for the love of running? Yeah, so um I'm doing the Delaware Marathon on June 13th. Okay. Um it'll be my first in-person race since the 2019 Philadelphia Marathon. Wow. It'll be my it'll be my ninth marathon. I've done Philly a few times, I did New York City, I did Marine Corps Marathon, did the Valley Forge Marathon. Um so yeah, this will be my ninth marathon. Um, and I'm really excited because it's gonna be my first race since before COVID. That's awesome. In person. Um, and what like my goal from running, um it it's bought me so much more than I ever could have imagined and just like transformed my life, like the friends that I never would have met. Um the places I've been, the things I've seen. And it's it's given me a platform that I wouldn't have had without running to help other people. Cause I, I got, I really lucked into two um, ambassadorships. Um, one is with Athletic Brewing Company where you heard me on the, the yeah. podcast. Um, and I had stopped, uh, just like I said, I don't have the, like the addictive gene. So I was, luckily able to get off of the opioids. And in September of 2018, I kind of plateaued with like my times and I'm like, what can I do to like be a better athlete? Like I'm a serious runner now, mm-hmm. what can I do? And I was like, you know what? The easiest thing to do would be to eliminate alcohol. Like that would just be the easy quickest. And I was like, okay, I'm not drinking anymore. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And then, about five seconds later, I thought, oh no, I love the taste of beer. What am I going to do? Because I remember like when there were only two really terrible non-alcoholic beers growing up. And I Googled like non-alcoholic beer and held my breath. And luckily I found a bunch of them. And then I found Athletic. They turned out to be my favorite. And then I saw that they were accepting application for ambassadors. And it was like, perfect. Now I'm this guy. Oh, and I digress. And part, another part of the reason why I cut out the alcohol was because of my saying, I have mental illness. Mm-hmm. Somebody with depression and anxiety, and especially PTSD, like really shouldn't be drinking. And I, and I knew that. Um, but alcohol was so prevalent at so many racing events and yeah. and it just seemed normal. And so it got to the point where I got disillusioned with it. So now to have the opportunity to be able to tell people with athletic, like, hey, you can still have that beer while you run, but without having to worry about getting buzzed or like, you know, getting drunk, um, it's healthier for you. Um, so it's given me a platform to share that. And that also ties in with, um, I have an ambassadorship with Still I Run, which mm-hmm. is a runners for mental health awareness um and so i have a lot of people that follow me from from that um we actually just yesterday finished um they have a run streak every year um may is mental health awareness month yeah so you sign up and we raised twenty thousand dollars i think collectively um, and you commit to run either, either walk or run a mile a day, every day for the month of May. 
and I actually ran 413.44 miles. In May? <laughs> in May. Wow. I will say I was looking recently, just scrolling through, like getting ready for our conversation today, looking at your, your Instagram. I was like, this guy runs like lots of, <laughs> lot, covers lots of distance every day. So it all makes sense. Today I ran 0.0, .0 miles because my <laughs> leg completely shot. And yeah. I have a marathon coming up in 12 days. And I just constantly have to keep challenging myself and pushing myself or I get stagnant. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so 413.44 miles for the month of May. <laughs> so what is, uh, what's the mission for Still I Run? So the founder um, has mental illness and like she went online and was looking for, you know, they have all kinds of running groups. And I guess she looked for one for people um, with mental health issues and couldn't find one. And eventually just said, I'm going to start one myself. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been, it's been great for me because it's given me a platform as one of their ambassadors that I write stories about them and share like, this is why I stopped drinking because I had PTSD. Um, this is why I do this. Sometimes I, like I wrote an article for them saying, have I, have I somehow loved the thing I hate it most talking about my chronic pain? that I don't, that I run until I'm in pain because I feel like I'm not doing any, like, I, like I'm like, oh, I'm not in pain yet. I haven't, that means I haven't done anything. Okay. And like that. Um, and it's also helped me because now I have a whole community that's literally worldwide that supports me. They have a, um, a website, it's still I run dot org. Mm -hmm. Then they have um, a Facebook page but they also have this amazing um, Facebook group that's private where um, it's the most amazing supportive Facebook group I've ever seen. Um, so that has become a really big part of my life. So I run for myself, um, but my mission now is that my running is for more than me. Um, I didn't think, I never, thought it would be, but it is because now I'm on the one end with the athletic brewing company, I'm, I'm showing people like, Hey, you can still drink beer and be healthy. And then from the other side, I have the still I run ambassadorship where I'm speaking up and, you know, especially, uh, like I can reach, I can say certain things that will resonate with men that, that have mental illness that a woman might not be able to. Mm -hmm. So I, I like, I like the ability to have the platform where I can, you know, help other people. And that's why I like doing the, um, you know, the magazine interviews and podcasts and all like, I, I just, anybody that's willing to listen to my story, I'm willing to tell it to because I just want, I just want to help other people. Well, that absolutely embodies um, this podcast. It's called running on optimism for a reason, because I think that through movement, like you find your meditation through movement, I think that, that that's the case for a lot of people. And I mean, everyone I've spoken to, and we're all going through some shit. <laughs> like we're all going through 
something, um, but we can still, we can, we can be in crap and feel like crap and be sad while at the same time be optimistic and hopeful for days of less crap. <laughs> well, and that's what, that's why I love your podcast. Um, cause you, you have guests on that have completely different lives than I have with completely different challenges and stories, but yet I can still on some level relate. So like, I look forward to like every episode cause I know it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be optimistic. Like there's, they share something in common with me somewhere yeah uh, that i recognize by the time by the time an episode has ended i'm like I, I i get yeah i get it and that was that was cool and i feel a little bit better i really appreciate that and uh izzy says that the wind blows the wrong way and mommy cries <laughs> it's absolutely true <laughs> but i really really appreciate you saying that um i bet you're making a much bigger impact than i think you realize I really appreciate that. Um, that's all I ever want, you know? So I really, really appreciate that. And I really appreciate you being so candid and open with me. Uh, this has been a really fun conversation. And now that everybody's doing live races, I would love to talk to you again after your Delaware marathon. Let's do a race recap. Okay, absolutely. Let me know how it goes. Okay. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And uh, if anybody, like, if anything that I've said resonates with anybody or you have questions, you think I might be able to help you, um, just reach out to me, DaveScarpello at gmail.com. offering to just reach out to anybody who needs it so if you want to chat with Dave um, I will put all of his information in the show notes I will include it in all social media posts um, if you want to reach out to me to reach out to Dave we can definitely do it that way thank you so much for listening as always and uh, like Dave said I hope that you all feel a little bit better after listening to his inspiring story as well until next time on Running on Optimism.